from a bunker underneath another bunker that was labeled ESG, but Larry Fink crossed it out and wrote capitalism on it instead. It's a Business Pants Fancy Expert interview. Woo! There's nobody here to cheer with me. I'm your analyst, Tom Matt Muscardi. In a second, you hear my co-host, the voice of Damien Hazelnut Rollis. But the person you're here to actually listen to is neither of us. It's NYU Stern's clinical professor in awesomeness, Allison Taylor. Allison wrote a book called Higher Ground. It's coming out in February. This conversation, we cover corporate ethics, transparency. We're going to sniff some bullshit. We're going to sniff some more bullshit. Then we're going to sniff a little bit more bullshit. But enough from me. Here's our conversation with the queen of corporate ethics, Allison Taylor. We are with Allison Taylor, the author of Higher Ground, How Business Can Do the Right Thing in a Turbulent World, which actually comes mm. out in February of next year, which mm. makes me feel incredibly special because I've read the whole thing already. Mm. Like That's never happened to me in my life where someone was like, Here. You've read a whole book? I read... I read <laughs> That's never happened. I've never read a book. She's also the clinical professor at NYU Stern School of Business. And I'm crib noting here, but I I wrote as like my note f- for you, Allison, teaching corporations how they can unfuck themselves ethically. That's basically kind of the tenor. Is that, would that, Is that be accurate? Yes. Yes. Is that an accurate description? That is accurate. That is about uh, about my starting point is that we have... Yes, corporations have have painted themselves into a very interesting corner that they are struggling to get out of, and I'm trying to provide a, a way forward from the morass. I would describe it as a morass that we are in. I like you already. <laughs> yeah, much more diplomatic than I am. Uh, also, was the uh, was is executive director at Ethical Systems, um, which is uh, I I didn't know it, but is arguably the largest group of. Sp- smart people that I've ever seen in my life. I mean, it's basically like a, like two dozen professors who all are the most qualified human beings on the planet to talk about ethical systems. Um, I want to start with the fact that your bio like that I read is doesn't do justice to the bio. The, w- there's one line in the book that I, the quote is, in my 12 years as a corporate intelligence specialist, which... Please tell me that's as fabulous and like secretive and you're like you're a nin- a corporate ninja because that's how it sounds. Was it that was, what it, it was, was like? It was fun. I mean, it was really a lot of fun. And I uh, I was first of all in this job, head of Middle East and Africa investigations and then head of the Americas. So I spent a lot of time in Lagos. Uh, I spent a lot of time drinking with journalists in bars. Uh, I spent a bit of time <laughs> in Dubai. Um, and I, uh, I mean, I guess at the end of the day, I'm incredibly nosy and I like to gossip. So if that is ah. your interest, this is the perfect job. I, I really you, had a lot of fun. Yeah. You sure. Yeah. There, you sort of described ESG data really. Yeah. <laughs> Gossiped and nosy. Yeah. Well, I mean, sort of, uh, I, actually the book is full of like these story nuggets that are amazing. They're, the, the most damning one to me was the Nazaki story, which I'm oh, yeah. sure I might be saying it wrong. Um, but there, there was a, there, there's like quotes in there, like, um, about how uh, uh, one immediate problem we faced was that compliance teams were asking questions that were somewhat, somewhere between difficult and impossible to answer. <laughs> and then goes to, there's simply no neat paper trails. The long nights I spent in hotel bars with well-connected sources usually raised more questions than they answered. 
it really does sound like you're wearing all black, like rooting through the trash mm. of of like like supply chain to figure uh, out who owns this company. It has it- been known. It was known. Yeah, I mean that was. Um, that was how I spent my time. This was something that it was an industry that in the 90s was pretty sleazy. It was like oh. black ops and counterintelligence. And then after 9-11, uh, everybody started to get obsessed with corruption and terrorist financing mm-hmm. and money laundering. And the industry pivoted to uh, investigating corruption. But I think hmm. this is obviously salient to how I approach questions of ESG more recently, because this is where I develop my nasty, suspicious mind. And not believe anything anybody uh, tells you. So that proved to be a very useful mindset when I moved over uh, into sustainability. But it also, when I moved over into sustainability, raised a lot of questions about what corporations were up to because there was this very siloed approach between all the nice stories we tell in sustainability Mm -hmm. about the wonderful things we're doing and then what was actually happening when I was working with the lawyers. Wait, so, so were there actual elements of danger, physical danger? I mean, not really directly. Not really. Okay. You run sources, you run, there's not really, it's not really going to get anyone very far if I turn up in Nigeria and start asking people a bunch of questions. You have to have people that will blend in, that will have Mm -hmm. the access that people trust. So it's more about kind of running these networks, kind of like an investigative journalist would do. Um, Right, right. So that's what you need. Yeah. So when you see a press release come out of a company, and I'm generally talking about large companies, do you immediately laugh or giggle or like you, you're like, you're like Fox Mulder and 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 Scully. You trust nothing, right? Or or is it like, yeah? Is there nuggets that you see when you see some of that stuff? Do you flash back and you're like, you know what? This nugget seems true. And the rest of this definitely feels like bullshit. Uh, I guess I I would say having, if you spend a long time in this field, you get good instincts for things. I think I have good instincts usually for where to look and what might be more or less credible. But, you know, I mean, this highlights a big problem in this whole space in general, right? Not to um, kind of jump to these big themes, but we act very often as if, if companies are just more transparent, we will all collectively be able to sniff out what is bullshit and not and mm-hmm. hold them accountable in some way no one ever fully spells out. And I think, as we know, like if you spend any time in the supermarket wondering what kind of eggs or coffee to buy, it's overwhelming, it's confusing. Mm-hmm. We've all got enough to do. And I don't know how we got into this idea that the public is somehow supposed to hold corporate America accountable because it's hard, even if you've got a lot of expertise. So, uh, yeah, I think we're in this weird conversation where we're kind of encouraging corporations to bullshit um, and then getting very angry with them when they do. I mean, this sounds so like existentially overwhelming. I mean, do you find yourself still feeling optimistic about the work you're doing or do you feel weighed down by it? I, I Damien's been depressed recently. No, I mean I have, but that's but that's beside the point. I'm just saying, like, like I, I think when you when you t- take in the world with a with a healthy intellectual skepticism, it, it, is it not a bit overwhelming at times to to because you because you're doing the thing that I think is appropriate. You are you are taking in corporate info with uh, a grain of salt, right? But but I think you speaking to something very important, which is one of my struggles here with this company, is that. Your average person 
has decided that they don't they they know they probably should do what you're doing and think of it the way you're thinking but they feel too overwhelmed by the idea of walking through life really smelling out like the truth constantly right so it does it just to, to me it just it feels like an overwhelming thing in general but i, I don't want to speak for yeah. you i mean i think when you think about it in terms of how can I tell a good corporation from a bad corporation? Which corporations are lying to me? What? How is corporate America ruining my life? Then it feels overwhelming and depressing. If you think a corporation is just a group of people and, it's, and corporations yeah. yes. are getting kind of formed and reformed and recreated the entire time, something uh, a student of mine said to me a couple of years ago that absolutely blew my mind, and it's kind of an obvious point, but he came up to me after class and he said, I'm 26 and I am the last generation that graduated and worked in an office for a year before COVID. And I was like, wow, mm -hmm. if you're under 26, you have no memory of what corporate culture was like before the it's pandemic. Mm -hmm. So there are all these people coming into organizations with new expectations and new ideas and new views of leadership and corporations are changing. I think it's depressing if we think of them as these kind of evil black boxes or sort of psychopathic right. people. It's more uh, kind of fun and uh, maybe promising if we think about them as systems and systems that are in flux. And systems that you can change, that you can, yeah. right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, that, that idea of corporations is a big pile of people. Um, that actually, there's a bunch of places that sort of comes up in the book, right? Yeah. Like where you're talking about the, the board, you're talking about, um, and you have like, um, and the employees and all the stakeholders and pointing out, I think there's a quote in there that it's like um, people interact with people. And you were talking about how when like a sustainability team has to go out and engage with some, you know, like supplier or something, right? Yeah. That it's, it's not this amorphous team with this amorphous organization. It is like Jane and John talking to each other exactly. and they have their individual incentives and all that stuff. Um, but, but there is sort of like, like there is a, like a, a, a tone that those people set that you point out transcend can often transcend them. You use VW, Wells Fargo, Purdue, Facebook to show that like, Sometimes the leadership gets fired and the culture persists. Mm -hmm. So what is like what is that? What is that part like how does that how how are we passing what are effectively bad genes inside this living organism of a of a corporation? So I and my favorite definition of culture is it's the the way we do things around here. So I think the mm. thing is that we don't pay enough attention to how easily influenced we are by the people around us so when you start in a job you know there's a lot of people uh, probably waffling on about values and making you sign things but you don't figure out how to behave by reading all these documents you look at how the people around you are acting so you know i mean it is true that culture is very difficult to change and it's not and you can change the leadership and so often the kind of organizational immune system will be more powerful than that. But it's also true that culture can be changed with deliberate effort. I think we just need to pay a little bit more attention to the reality of how people behave in groups and stop talking um, as if corporations are people because uh, in fact they're not. And it's getting us into a, a, a part of the problem, I think, is, is, is that our metaphors are all wrong. 
Yeah, to me, I mean, what, what you're talking about really speaks to the, the problem that we've given management itself, and maybe you include the board with that, way too much power over the identity of the corporation, right? And I don't know that that was, that was always meant to be the case, but it's just sort of what's happened, right? So there, none of the other stakeholders drive the identity of these corporations anymore. It just, it only seems to be in the hands of this very select, powerful few. You also have a, you have a quote from Nell in the book who was just on our show and um, we love Nell, but it was about how even when you insert someone new into the board and it's supposed to be like fresh blood, somehow they all get subsumed into this one group think that is the board and it maintains yeah. the culture. Yeah, and, 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 and C-suites and CEOs really want a board that's agreeable and cooperative. So uh, yeah. if that's the dynamic, then, uh, you know, that is going to be the signal uh, the board is getting. That's the basis on which its members have, uh, are selected. It's going to be mm -hmm. very hard to, for one person to change that dynamic. You you tend to would tend to need at least two. But I will say this. It, <clears throat> like, there there's a part of the – there's a part where you talk about um, – the, like a more promising path for CEOs. And it went a little off the rails for me because you pointed out a, um, something that Damien's actually been pointing out on, in the show for a while, which is like this move towards South Asian male CEOs, like quiet, understated, yeah. generally Indian American Indian. Um, you point out Satya Nadella and Sundar Pichai, but Sundar in particular, I mean, he's 51% of the company is still like the voting power is still owned by Sergey and Larry. It's basically Sir Sergey and Larry's show. It's just Sundar is kind of like the guy who has to go get grilled in front of Congress. Is that really like quieter leadership or is that really like a human body shield in front of the guys who actually are the, like the owners, the ones who, who, I think who that, I, mean, I think that's a good critique. I, you know, we have enormous problems in this country with uh, the concentration of power and the concentration of wealth. Uh, and I think coming up with a comprehensive solution to that uh, is probably beyond me. But um, there is interesting, <laughs> I mean, aside, <laughs> aside from these people, there's interesting data showing that CEO and CFO job descriptions have changed. So we used to want okay. these technical skills. Mm -hmm. We used to want a certain kind of background. And, and recruitment data does show we're looking for a different kind of person and a different kind of skill set. I um I tend to be relatively cynical about the prospect of, of any of our current leadership teams changing fast enough in time. But again, you know, the reason I feel less hopeless than Damien in general is I spend a lot of time <laughs> and I think, well, when these people are in charge, I do think things will be better. So uh, let's hope I'm right. Yeah. Well, I mean, well, first of all, the bar to be less depressed than Damien is real low. Um, but the, uh, uh, like uh, Part of the concerning the concerning piece of the data that that we're seeing all the time is this move. Like it was founder fetish for a long time, right? Particularly tech bro founder fetish, yeah. where um, they would have dual class shares or they'd maintain power and um, and all the equity and all the money, right? Like it basically was. It is that concentration of power, but the move towards diversity and you talk about diversity in the book, um, and and I love it because you don't talk about diversity as body count you basically talk about it as like if you're not getting away from groupthink effectively right, right. then what are you really doing but the 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 data is showing that 
the the that sort of model of founder fetish, the founders are now taking executive chair roles, maintain their equity stakes, and put a human body shield or several in front of oncoming missiles, which makes it way easier for us to say, well, that CEO is is shit, or, oh, I love that CEO, either way, and the real power sits somewhere else, right? Like is some, it's now the, and that's what I thought of when you said quieter leadership cohort, you were sort of talking about like the style of Satya and Sundar, but I thought of it as like the quiet leadership cohort are the same leadership cohort. They're just not out in front anymore. It's like they're using human body shields. Yeah, I think that's interesting and I think it's fair. I also think, um, I mean, you said we're in this kind of very top down situation, but I do think there is an interesting kind of set of ideas developing that I also hear in the classroom every day, which is the idea that a corporation's a kind of democracy and what you need to do mm-hmm. is gather the interests of your stakeholders and in some way represent them uh, on the public stage. And a lot of people have been kind of saying that. I think it's extremely dangerous and we're starting to see just how dangerous now there's this uh, conversation going on about what corporations should and shouldn't say about Israel and Palestine. So um, mm-hmm. I, I worry... Uh, and this is something I hear in the classroom that I find very worrying is uh, young people sort of say, well, I could stand in line to vote once every four years and what's it going to do? Or I could pressure a corporate leader and they might at least seem more responsive, even if they are not, in fact, more responsive. So Wait, uh, wh- I, I think all of this part- is come of how powerless we feel. Wait, which part are you saying is dangerous? Uh, I'm... I'm uh- um, I think the notion that that, yeah. that, a, that a leadership team is somehow representing the views of its stakeholders in some way is dangerous. Okay. Corporations aren't designed to do that. Uh, they're not designed to represent the majority opinion of their stakeholders. Um, and I hear a lot of this kind of rhetoric out there. And I think um, I think it's mainly worrying because it takes energy away from the political process. So you're saying that that what they're since they're really there to represent the shareholder that we're 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 confusing what they're really there for and that we I'm not sure they're there to represent the shareholder. I think they might be there to represent themselves, right? Well, like clearly I, I, in America they are, yeah. But I think in other places too. I mean, I mean, I think I think the idea of this shareholder. I mean, if they were there to represent the shareholder, you'd have boards that were independently chosen and that that would hold management accountable and the shareholder would say you represent us, right? Like you have to do what we say. But that's say. how the system is created. That's how it was designed. But what you actually see is that the CEO and the management team choose the board. They all get rubber stamped at a yeah. 96%. I mean, I think they largely represent themselves, not even the shareholder, and I think the central tension of the book, I think, in many ways, um, which, by the way, is an excellent book. I, I've read a lot of these kinds of books, and this one's really good because it's very practical. But the central tension is like you have these stakeholders that are amorphous, and you make them less amorphous by talking about who they really are and the v- incredible, untenable variety of views that they're going to have. Yeah. And that comes head on with the incentives and the people who are in a position to represent or make change. And that tension just plays out everywhere. It's like it plays out on the ground to your point in the Middle East or in Lagos or in a hotel bar, and it plays out on Twitter. 
right? Right. Um, and it which, goes back to this where we started the conversation, right? Which is the gap between what companies say and what they mean. Mm-hmm. And even the way of framing that suggests there's a single brain making a decision, which isn't true. Um, but but the problem, I think, or part of the problem is whether, and we could argue uh, all day about whether these leaders quote unquote mean it or not, but they change their rhetoric. They used to say shareholder value and don't break the law. We are politically neutral. We don't get involved in these controversial questions. Starting in around 2016 to 2018, they start to say, well, no, now we also need to be socially responsible and represent and balance the interests of our stakeholders. You don't have to have meant that to have opened up an enormous space of debate and contention and pressure and rhetoric and expectations. Yeah. And and whether they meant it or not is kind of beside the point. They've opened Pandora's box and now mm-hmm. there are all these stakeholders yelling at them and they can't really put Pandora back in the box and say, sorry, we didn't mean it. We were just trying to drive shareholder value by making a lot of convenient noise during the Trump administration. <laughs> yes, yeah, <see>, I... <laughs> Yeah. I, can I just say I agree with you in principle, but I think there's like another thing going on, which is I I I think we're talking mostly about American companies, right? Am I wrong about sure? that? Yeah. So the other thing going on in America, and this has certainly happened like very steadily since like the Reagan administration, is that especially compared to the economies of say Europe or Canada, is that people here have absolutely are basically get nothing from their government anymore right we don't get yeah, we don't get health care in the book yeah we, i mean we really get nothing 100%. and i think it, it it took us 20 years to realize as a people that look i mean we it's our corporations now giving us the benefits that we should be getting and that you're getting in france or canada so we it, we kind of have to turn to our corporations and 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 at, right and be like yeah, I mean, help I us out more very- yeah very directly that we've turned to corporations because we're desperate and we've got nowhere else to go. There's an even greater irony, of course, which is that these corporations have in many respects spent 20 or 30 years undermining social services, the health system, the education system, any prospect of regulating climate change, um, any effort to deal with inequality. So they've spent their whole time lobbying uh, in what they uh, felt or or believed at least was their short-term self-interest with the deeply ironic consequence that now all these policy problems are dumped in their laps. Yeah, well, what it did is I think it helped them control their labor force better, right? And and we know that like again, starting with Reagan, he hated labor. Yeah. But if you if you want if you need if you if you want your labor to to not complain, not argue, show up every day out of fear and just listen to you, the best way to do that is to be the ones in control of all of their like their dental care, their health care, right? So it's not it's it makes sense to me in that way. It is a funny way to think of it, though, like in order to get labor to be more controllable, you have to undermine the government systems that provide them services and then you have to take care of their teeth. Right. Like it is like a really weird. But this is why they eventually had to weigh in on stakeholder issues, though. Right. Like I feel like the people were pushing hard enough that they had to kind of start talking about it. Right. It's like because it's a self-fulfilling prophecy like. We're now taking care of you and you're now showing up to ask us what, you know, what does mommy and daddy think? Yeah. I don't know. I just see like, I just see as an inevitable, it it was inevitable, right? I, I, um, well, you have a great quote, um, about how the Larry Fink letter, 
the letters, right? Um, right. Um, but you, you talk about how people are coming to you to discuss the Larry Fink letter all of a sudden, and you get excited, and then all of a sudden you realize, I don't know, all of a sudden I'm pretending, but like I can imagine you like sipping some tea, looking out the window, and then thinking to yourself, well, shit, didn't we just get to a place and you say, quote, uh, get ourselves into a circular argument that shareholder returns are the best way to evaluate an approach originally conceived as a counterweight to the overwhelming obsession with shareholder returns. Right. Like it was like we've gotten ourselves in this giant circle. But I would argue that isn't there some value anyway, you, because the corporations open Pandora. Dora's box and they didn't mean it to be anything other than shareholder returns. Right. They just were, it was basically a way for them to position themselves to sound like they cared about you while getting the shareholder returns. 100%. It's also been a catalyst for uh, like m more action than prior to that because we used to make fun of BlackRock for not voting on anything right. in the ESG world. Right. And then they started voting on stuff. Now they're not voting on it again because of the conservatives in this country, because we're full of idiots. But it did do a thing, at least temporarily. Isn't there some value to it in that way? Um, to ESG, you mean? Oh, I mean to like this notion of stakeholder capitalism that the, like even if it, it was like opening Pandora's box and now they're providing us all these services, the pressures oh, on yeah. them. Yeah, I mean, and I, I, the data you get from them and the action you get from them has been something. I think I don't think there's um, well, I don't I mean, I guess people do debate this. I don't think there's that much debate that the singular focus on shareholder value has run out of road. There's clearly um, enormous mounting angst for very good reasons. Uh, that's really a result of us treating negative externalities as irrelevant to corporate value. Uh, that's become unsustainable. The question is, what do we do instead and how do we do it? Um, and, you know, I think one of the, the bigger problems to this point about companies now taking on policy problems is that we've got all this rhetoric about how corporations um, are going to solve inequality and the healthcare crisis and provide education and, and, and so on. Um, and we're not paying attention to how they are interfering with the political process on the back end to ensure that we don't yeah, really get access sure. to any of these things. Well, so, the rhetoric would yeah. be a problem if we were encompassing uh, influence right. on uh, in the political sphere. Uh, the what problem could we, is sure. split screen. Yeah. Well, could yeah. we solve that with the same mechanism? Could we could could we try to open disclosure on that end too and include that in the ESG data pile? And yeah, let's so talk what, about the disclosure issue because it's very prominent in the book. Like, um, like uh, the 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 recognition that disclosure isn't the solution, right? Like, and and the double-edged nature of disclosure. Yeah. Why is it not the solution? Damien well, is a, no, like, full transparency, like, uh, like oh, he's all the way at the other end of the spectrum. Like, make everybody do stand-up comedy routines and record them and then make those public, like, that that kind of thing. I think, you know, I mean, I'm, I don't think transparency is bad per se. I just think we're telling mm -hmm. this weird story. If you look at um, 
the CDP website, for example, and what it was saying when, when it was founded in 2000, it's kind of like, we're going to push all these companies to disclose and then we're going to hold them accountable and then we're going to drive change and tackle climate change. I think we need to just uh, recognize that it's now 23 years later and we're still arguing about what and when to disclose and we still act as yeah. if this is going to be a panacea um, when it in fact isn't. I think also we mm -hmm. don't acknowledge Company disclosures are massively complicated even when they're not trying to lie to us. So the notion yeah. that if we just get more information, we'll be able to hold these entities accountable in some way that's never fully spelled out, I think is wishful thinking. And I think it um, it get, it's a lot of job creation for the conscience-ridden children of boomers. It makes a lot of people feel like they're doing a bunch of stuff. Uh, but when I look out there, I'm like, wow, there are a lot of people working on information and lot, not a lot of people working on actually changing anything. Uh, so that's what worries me about this. We treat it My, as a solution yeah. it isn't. I agree with you, but I wonder, is there not an unintended consequence to asking any anyone to disclose anything about that? Like if I had to disclose my relationship history to everybody when I like met a new partner, wouldn't it kind of make me a better partner to the next one? Like if I had to admit some of the stuff that I did wrong and like, you know what I mean? Like, I just think that like, and then they would, no one would date you. That's okay. But that's fine. But I'm just saying like, is there not a, is there not a positive unintended consequence that by making companies just tell us who they are to the best of the, of their ability that as a society, we're kind of, we're at least like, edging towards more proper behavior. I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm Pollyannish about I mean, this. It certainly puts in place a lot of very expensive efforts uh, by companies to tell us who they are. I'm thinking about the recent Apple ad and I just don't even know. Sure. Um, yeah. but, uh, but I'm sure they're, they're, they're saving Mother Earth at, at the same time. There's, I use an example from the book about how kind of Congress got ruined by all this transparency. No one can do deals in a, you know, behind the scenes and get things agreed. True. It's far too um, awful to look like you might be cooperating with the other side because we're so polarized. Mm -hmm. So there are lots of instances where transparency or feeling like you're being looked at the whole time, uh, being like you're like um, asked, like, you know, look like you're being asked to perform there's now this kind of tendency with esg data we've got to have it all real time uh so that we can all out there somehow hold these companies accountable in a way that isn't happening so we sort of have got this idea that more and more and more and more data is going to somehow result yeah that's true it isn't yeah i uh, think in fact there's there's two recent novels i think on this there's a dave eggers novel and there's one out by jennifer egan that talks about this this idea that that and it starts with like a big tech company, but that 100% constant open, like knowing everything will solve all of society's problems because you wouldn't commit murder if everybody was watching you, right? Like it is sort of a fascinating question. Like it, by if you force corporations to constantly tell you what that the evil they're doing, maybe they won't do the evil, but I, but you're right. Like it's so much more complicated than that. Right. I mean, right. well, one, I mean, not least, cause we don't agree on what the evil actually is. That's true. Yeah. That's true. Yeah, right. Well, right. let's get yeah. more, dis more and more and more disclosure about how these companies are overseeing their supply chains. That does not answer yeah. the question of, do we think Western corporations ought to be operating in China given the human rights? Yeah. That's the question yeah. no one wants to answer. So we're like, oh, let's get more information and then we'll know. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it, it, yeah, I was going to say it's, it's, par it's part of the downfall of the ESG industry is just because it's, 
there's a lot look there's a lot of academics there and this is what academics do best right we hand ring over how to name things and and the proper way to, to classify them and right. and what to do like yeah so it's just like it's a laborious process yeah I will say you you bring out um, something that really hit me close to the heart when you talk about like there's the transparency, but we ne- we rarely think about the receiver of the data, right? Um, yeah, we and- don't. We well, we do when we're standing in the supermarket trying to figure out what coffee to buy. We are the receiver. I I spoke at a tea conference, right. and people there were like, "We can't even fit all the certifications on the packet anymore." Mm, <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know who we're helping. I don't know who we're helping. I also think this is easier to see the problem with this if we think in human terms. You know. Transparency is just another word for constant surveillance, if you put it that way. So I don't think humans respond very well to the notion that their email and everything they're doing at their computers is being tracked by their employer. Um, And I don't know that uh, corporate entities respond very well to the notion that stakeholders are evaluating them and pointing fingers at them the whole time. I think the other thing that's really interesting is in the sustainability community, we tell uh, companies this weird story, which is if you're just more transparent, stakeholders will trust you and you'll have a a better reputation and you'll drive more shareholder value this isn't true we tend to mm-hmm. attack often the best performers not the worst performers the best place to be is in the middle of the pack with your head down we punish the best companies so we're telling people a story that isn't true and then we're not surprised the skepticism yeah it is true i mean the the more po- the more popular you you are I, you know, as a company these days you're in for a load of trouble like you're gonna well, get constant scrutiny Yep. That's not, that's true. That's like a human condition, right? Sure, like it, that's it true too. Like athletes, um, yep. like uh, like uh, Hollywood stars. It doesn't matter who you are, or what you are. If you're at peak popularity, like there's somebody right now trying to find every dirty piece of information about Taylor Swift because she's yeah. at the absolute top of her game. So you can be sure. But like, what struck me about it is. In, in um, when you like when you talk about like CDP, right? Um, I used to say when I was at MSCI, and I wasn't a salesperson; I was an analyst. So I would go into these meetings with like PMs and talk about the data we had and the model that I built and all that kind of stuff. And um, they used to say like things to me like, "Why do we care about carbon?" And this is 15 years ago; nobody cared about carbon. But I used to say like, "Look." Gordon Gecko said the value is in the information, right? I what I don't know just because an NGO went and got you the information and said they were going to change the world with it doesn't mean you can't use the information for whatever you want to use it for. And I think the funny part is in your book that my me saying that to like a PM is part of the problem, right? Because then they go and take the information. They can say they took the information. They can market it. They can do. They actually can use it to target something antithetical to what it was got. Like the the reason yeah. why we got the information in the first place. And there are all sorts of problems. And I the receiver became it. What to me it wasn't transparency that was the problem. It was how that transparency then got used. And you point that out time and time again throughout the book. Yeah, exactly. I think that's very well put. Um, so um, I, yeah. yeah, I was gonna say, can we? I want. I, I'm like really interested in this idea. Of what you're talking about. So can we just like take you? You, you mentioned the supermarket a few times. Um, <laughs> I love the supermarket. And I just read um, this analogy of like what packaging is these days. It's that the front is for the company, and the back is for the I guess the the stakeholder consumer, right? Like the because the back is regulated by the government, and they're 
The company is forced to tell you these things. And, and the front is a free for all. Like they can do all their lying there. This is the best chocolate ever. So, so I'm just like confused, like from your perspective, like, are you saying that there's, there's something negative about the side that's for the consumer? Like, I'm just a little confused about your position I'm, here. Uh, on. All I'm saying is something yeah. like, a little more basic than that, Damien. I'm just saying okay. uh, transparency isn't bad, but it's not a panacea. It's not the solution. Got that it. I'm- suggests it is the whole time uh and that we're telling uh corporate leaders a story about transparency that it's all wonderful and it's going to make their lives better that isn't true either and then we seem to be surprised we're getting these incredibly paranoid curated bullshit ridden disclosures because we're saying transparency will be great and just be more transparent and stakeholders will love you it's quite obviously not true and we're ending yes. up with a lot of uh brochureware and pr um and nonsense i wonder if there's like you know if you look at the history of this if you if you think about enron and then you think about the collapse in 2008 and i, I think there was like a lot of good intention uh, uh, this idea of like we need more transparency we need it like now we need more disclosure blah 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 but then it also hit with the rise of social media where everything is transparent 24 7 and it like it kind of we are we as a people got we're overwhelmed now with information and and you're right like there's some like transparency went off the rails at some point right it's like but i think you're right to point it out though i mean well we thought it was first of all we thought it was great we thought it was going to create democracy we had the arrow spring we had occupy wall street we're like right now citizens are going to be able to hold everyone accountable and we're in this great new era of sort of interactive you know Mm -hmm. there was a book called here comes everyone there were a lot of these very optimistic (laughs) books sounds scary in Mm -hmm. in the kind of early 2010s um and then everything started to go horribly wrong and now we obviously blame social media for everything but it's got a lot darker there's a lot of um data about the impact on mental health and then i think right hard for anyone my age to understand what it's like to grow up like this but something i see in the classroom is is as well students are very sophisticated about these questions of authenticity and image and what you say and what you really mean and so Mm -hmm. you know i talk about transparency and i talk about employees especially kind of weaponizing internal information i honestly think that's just getting going because if you grew up online Mm -hmm. You have a view of these things that is very, very, very different from if you didn't. Yeah. You are, I think, able to use um, use this information in really, really interesting ways. And I think that combined yeah. with the general attitude I see in the classroom means that corporations really need to buckle up because this is all going to get a lot more difficult. And I well, think I'm, I'm glad yeah. you pointed it out like that, too, because you're right. Like we're, we're at this divide, gen- generationally speaking, where people like me are kind of like wondering, you know, is social media the problem, blah, 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 blah. And I'm sitting there on a bench in a park thinking about these things. And you're right, the new generation, they're not wasting their time with that thought. They're like moving ahead at, 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 like at breakneck speeds, just dealing with what is, right? So I, well, I think I mean, I'm even, glad you kind of pointed that out. Even the idea that you and I might have that there's the real world and then there's the online world and there are two different things. Yeah, that's not a thing. there's that True, distinction. Yeah. No, only to us, yeah. yeah. Which is why yeah. there's all this stuff about kind of speech and who's allowed to say what, because I think there's more yeah. an understanding if you're young that speech has a physical impact. It's not you have 
what people say and what people do, but these things interact in a much more um, kind of threatening and dynamic way. So I think even our mindset is completely anachronistic in some ways, Damien. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, like, I, and I think the, the central tenet of the book is like that transparency among other things, but like the, the things that make a company ethical are not going to be that they disclosed something or right. that they like, and, and it's not going to be that like you can't predict what the receiver is going to do with information um, that you exist in China is not ethical or not ethical. It is a question that you need to like, yeah. you need to understand, like you need to actually measure, understand, engage. Um, and and I actually think the book, I think it's in the conclusion, the quote I pulled was, an avowal of purpose can be considered a public declaration of a company's superordinate goal, why it deserves to exist. And to me, like that was, is the point, right? Like all of the things you were talking about, disclosure, they do these purpose statements and vision statements and like, let's go hug each other. Like, like that. All those public declarations are what the current generation, the kids in your classroom, what uh, even ESG people. I know you don't like the the ESG data people that well, not the people, but the ESG data that much, right? Maybe the but people. like everybody's taking the same data sets, and they are they are effectively asking the question: Should this company exist? One on one hand, will it exist from a capital market yeah. standpoint? Well, and on the other hand, should it exist from a social, ethical, purposeful standpoint? Like, what's it give it. me? Yeah. Um, look, I think um, uh, we're at the 40-minute mark, and I think... Um, See, I'm just getting started. I, I know. Feel like, I Damien. feel like I need, like, two or three more hours here. <laughs> Damien's going to show up in your class. Like, yeah, actually, like sure. Why not? Why not? Why <laughs> not? He's going to be sitting in the back. Um, that. This is awesome. Are, are there any parting thoughts that you want somebody who hasn't read the book? Because, you know, like I, we're not multinational corporations, right? Like we're no, just people. I mean, I suppose. And we read it and I love it. Thank you. If I had a one-liner, I would say, you know, we've lost sight of what it means to be uh, a good business in the 2020s. But uh, you said uh, it's a book about unfucking corporate ethics, and I now prefer that mm. much more. So um, <laughs> that's what I'm going with now. So thanks for helping with my book launch, and an absolute delight to talk to you both. <laughs> no, can I, can I just be a quick pain for one more minute? Sure. I'm yeah. sorry. I, I ask the like, God, but I gotta question, ask, yeah. like, how how do you define uh, what is good? What is a good corporation? I mean, do you, do you have a definition you, of that? To, Alice, to just yeah. Allison, right? I just say. Well, I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe not just to you. Yes, Allison. I want to hear what you think, but to the broader world too. Exercise some practical curiosity about your impacts on human beings and make a best possible effort to do no harm and clean up your own mess before you start trying to solve any okay. problems. And and is there, do you think there's a way to measure that or should we even ask that question? Is that a dumb question? Uh, you can measure it. I mean, the you know, the, the main point, I think, is that we're not even trying to measure it. What we're trying to yeah. do is, is, is tell a nice story that deflects reputational risk and protects shareholder value. So we're again, we're using these kind of new terms and new uh, phrases and new concepts like stakeholder capitalism. And we're in fact just doing the same thing over and over again and expecting. I, I, yeah, 
I, I, I now I'm kind of seeing the bigger picture. Yeah. I, and I tend to agree with you. Yeah, definitely. Because I mean, let me, my, can I just say quickly, like my problem with the ESG industry is that I always say it's just, it's, it's a big marketing exercise, right? Like it's a, yeah, well. like yeah. they're like, and, and that's, and I, I clearly don't come in from that perspective. I, I came in you know from the perspective of, of seeing how to use it to kind of apply good, like you're talking about. And then I realized like, it's just this like, relentless, tireless way of like marketing a product and selling it, not really caring about anything other than that. I mean, but yeah, so I, I'm with well, you. Well, I will ask you. you this this parting question then, um, since Damien opened the Pandora's box of final questions. I'm just trying to keep I'll Allison around it. longer. <laughs> I know you are. What, and I was obsessed with this when I was at MSCI because I, I actually think this, I know why we have limited liability. Right? right. I know the, the the legal construct and the mythical construct. I read Yuval Harari's Sapiens. Yeah. I know about how we need those myths and all that kind of stuff. Do, do you reintroduce ethics as soon as you reintroduce liability, though? Uh, I think to some degree. It depends if you think the legal system uh, uh, reflects the state of social norms at any given time. Mm. I tend to think that is lagging and, and, and that the mechanism to translate social norms into legal controls is sort of broken. Honestly, that's, that's the perfect answer. Um, that is Alison Taylor. The, uh, The book is how a higher ground, how business can do the right thing in a turbulent world. It comes out February, 2024. Um, Thank you so much. Thanks we'll, so much. Uh, if when you're up for it again, we'll have you back on, and Damien can talk. I could do this forever. For like, six I'm, I'm hours. So, uh, yeah, I'm like locked into this <laughs> conversation. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. A huge thanks to Allison for enduring our never-ending rambling incoherence and making us ever so smarter. We'll be back again with a Business Pants Friday show wrapping the week tomorrow. But in the meantime, go pre-order the book, Higher Ground, from Allison Taylor. And until tomorrow, goodbye. Goodbye.